Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm senior reporter Stephen Dallahunty. And I'm Andy Ricketts, news editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we're discussing the issue of whether charities should pay for the Charity Commission's services. And we've got a good news bulletin looking at positive or quirky stories from across the sector. But first, we should note that this is an all-male third sector podcast for the first time, as regular hosts Emily and Rebecca are both away. So please stop us if we fall into any male tropes and start talking about sport or beer or <laughs> tractors. I don't know. But we'll do, we'll do the best job we can without the, the usual experts around. Indeed. I mean, could this be the end of the third sector podcast as we know it, now they've let the boys kind of take over? Yeah, well, I think we can finally transition into that football slash star trek you know tribute <laughs> podcast we've always wanted to do yeah the good news is though we do have Lindsay, our amazing podcast producer who is uh silently on the call so i think she will keep us in line for the duration of the podcast recording let's hope so and with that move on to a quick update we have a new charities minister. Three weeks, almost to the hour, since Baroness Barron, the former Minister for Civil Society, was moved on to the Department for Education, it finally emerged that DCMS Minister Nigel Huddleston would be given the charities brief. But after having Barron as a dedicated minister for just over two years, responsibility for the sector has been given to a man who is not short of other things to do. No, that's right. Huddleston has been a DCMS minister since February last year and already oversees sport, tourism, heritage and the Commonwealth Games. So it means that the charities brief has been folded back into the sports minister's role, which has never been something that the voluntary sector has been very pleased about. The other area of concern for some in the sector is that Huddleston doesn't appear to have much in the way of obvious charity credentials. He worked as a consultant and for Google before entering Parliament. But what do we make of his appointment, Stephen? It, as you just said, it's kind of hard to say because... I didn't really know who he was before he became the charities minister. Um, and, you know, a search, like you say, you know, a search of his social media or through any news articles where he may, may have contributed to debates in parliament on the sector. Um, a very few and far between. So it, it's hard to see what sort of any strong feelings or he has about the sector or where he's going to bring value or, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out I think. I think it's interesting that he's obviously been the sports minister for the last kind of 18 months or so and even though I would probably declare myself as something of a sports fan and you know obviously we're not falling into uh, sport and football discussions now but um, he, he's been fairly low-key I think in that job. I don't really think that I've seen him doing a great deal in that position so it'd be interesting to see whether he's able to put his stamp on the charities brief in any way over the next few weeks and months yeah and he's made one or two i think it's fair to say pretty general statements so far so i think it'll be interesting to see um what his engagement is like with the sector you know see what kind of job he'll do and see what his priorities will be and hopefully hear you know a bit more detail on some of these matters soon yeah shall we move on to our main topic for today let's do it Last week, Ian Carrot, 
interim chair of the Charity Commission, was asked at the regulator's annual public meeting about charities having to pay the regulator for its services. Asked whether the Commission had abandoned plans to introduce such measures, Carrot said he could not say for certain the idea had been scrapped, but described it as a political decision that had more traction under both of his predecessors. He was also asked whether giving the Commission the ability to find charities that persistently file later counts was still an option. But he said his gut response was that he did not think there would be support for that kind of system because taking money out of the sector in that way would not go down well with the public. Yeah, it's interesting because the idea of the Commission charging for its services has been around for years, but it really started to gain momentum when William Shawcross was chair of the regulator between 2012 and 2018. The Commission at that time had seen huge cuts to its funding from central government and began talking about the idea of introducing charges for its services as a way of replacing some of that funding. In September 2015, Shawcross said it was inevitable that charities would have to make a financial contribution to the Commission in the future and said other industries operated systems where organisations paid for regulatory services. Yeah, and then around two years later, in 2017, the Commission got to the point of raising the idea that the largest 2,000 charities in England and Wales would be asked to contribute around £7 million a year to the regulator. Helen Stevenson, the Commission's Chief Executive, said at the time that although she expected the debate within the sector over charging charities to be a heated one, it is one that must be had. And any move to introduce charges would require legislation in Parliament and a formal consultation on the matter was expected to be launched that year. But it was delayed by the snap general election and we are still waiting for that consultation to be launched. Yeah, and things have really gone pretty quiet on the charging front since then, mainly, until 2018 when Baroness Stoll, who took over as chair of the commission from William Shawcross, said that sector charging is something that does remain very much on the table. But then a year later, Helen Stevenson said a consultation on the measure was not something that was on the agenda at the moment because the government was too preoccupied with other activities, such as agreeing a Brexit deal. And since then little appears to have changed. Yeah, so we asked the Commission what the latest was and a spokesperson said it has no plans to consult on charging in the near future. Any changes to its funding model would be a matter for the government, the Commission said. We also asked DGMS about this and they said funding matters were for the Treasury. We asked the Treasury and it did not respond. So where does that leave us? Has it been kicked into the long grass? Or should charities still expect the Commission to have another go at this at some point? I mean, it's a funny one, really, because I, I've, I mean, I've worked on third sector since 2007, which is wow. a bit scary, a very long time. And this idea has been knocking around for such a long period of time. And we've had various goes. At, I mean, obviously, Shawcross was the closest to kind of actually introducing it because, you know, the, con- the commission did come up with some some actual numbers for how it might work. They had a couple of different scenarios that were drawn up at various points. But it's certainly fair to say the idea has always been controversial and unpopular among charities. Umbrella Bodies branded the notion a charity tax and the House of Lords Select Committee on Charities said it had grave concerns about the idea because it was fundamentally changed the regulator's relationship with the sector. I think the concern there was that if charities were making a financial contribution to the regulator, it would change the relationship between the two sides. The other issue is, of course, that the pressure on public finances remains high and 
is not likely to be getting any easier as we, we recover from COVID and the government tries to kind of recoup the billions that it's spent propping up the economy in the meantime. So you sort of get the sense the idea will continue to at least lurk in the background for the foreseeable future. What's your take on where things are at, Stephen, particularly after you heard Ian Carrot talking about it? You know, Carrot, during that particular speech was less combative, let's say, than his predecessor. Um, and I think for good reason that only, you know, as he's in an interim position, that a lot of this debate will depend on who the new commission chair is and, you know, maybe what their politics are, you know, how they go about engaging with the sector. I mean, it still could be quite a wait before we find out who that person will be. I feel like that it will keep coming back until uh, until maybe it finally comes or someone finally puts a nail in its coffin. But it's difficult to know really what's going to happen, particularly with the uncertainty around the Charity Commission chair. I mean, that's a big thing in the government's intro at the moment. And we're sort of waiting on the edge of our seats to find out who the nominated person will be. But definitely charities will continue to campaign against it. A lot will depend on on how that's kind of played out in the court of public opinion, because there is this concern from charities that not only, as the House of Lords Select Committee pointed out, that they would change the relationship between the Charity Commission and charities themselves. It, it also potentially affects how the public views how charities spend their money if they're having some of their donations going to paying for a government regulator. Is there a perverse incentive there between this, you know, will you be able to decide whether or not you can pay the regulator? Because if you're paying for someone's service, like the regulator, you might want to seat at the table and deciding on what, you know, the regulator can and can't do. I, I feel like it's a, it's a slippery slope in terms of the relationship. Yeah. And I mean, because of course the fundraising regulator, the levy that charities have to pay to that is actually voluntary even though i think many would argue that it's not strictly speaking voluntary because there's quite a lot of pressure on the largest fundraising charities to actually make a contribution towards the fundraising regulator you wonder whether there could be some kind of voluntary scheme that could be established whereas charities could make a commitment but i feel like there wouldn't be the public pressure on them that the same in a, in the same way that the fundraising regulator has a you know after the fundraising scandals of a few years ago there is quite a lot of kind of moral duty on charities to pay for that self-regulatory system. I'm not sure if that would be the case with the charity mission because of it being a government body. It's kind of, it's a different, it's a different kettle of fish, it seems. No, and I think, as we sort of mentioned, that I don't think there's the appetite maybe within government. You know, we have a charities bill going through Parliament at the moment, which, you know, arguably the last year or two would have been the time, the really good time to have this debate, which never happened and I don't see, you know, hopefully if the bill, a lot of the, most of the sectors are happy with the bill as it is and when it passed, um, I don't see, I don't see that there would be another discussion on this issue within the next year or two of it going through Parliament. But again, it comes back to, I guess, who becomes when we find out about the new chair. Yeah, yeah. And we will be eagerly waiting to find out what that, who that person is going to be. So until then, I think we'll probably be waiting. And I think you're right, Stephen. I think we could be in for a bit of wait before we get any more developments on this front. I mean, certainly charities who are against the idea, which I think is probably most of them, will be hoping that it won't be any time soon and, and the idea has been well and truly kicked into the long grass.
Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky stories that we've spotted in the sector. And we should probably continue the fine tradition started by Rebecca and Emily of mentioning cute animals, because we've certainly got one this time. Now, obviously, no one can see the pictures that we had for this particular story. But um, if you want to go online and find them, I'm sure you can, because Edinburgh Zoo has announced the arrival of what it says is Scotland's only baby porcupine, or to use the correct term, a porcupet. Stephen, did you know that a, por- a baby porcupine was called a porcupet? No, my um, my porcupine or porcupet knowledge is um, not what it once was. <laughs> 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 no. Okay, fair enough. Um, but the zoo said that Fiddick was born to first-time parents Zahara and Rick on the 31st of August, and he is apparently getting bolder and spending more time outside with mum and dad. I fear that Fiddick has been rather unfortunate with being born on the 31st of August because, of course, it means when he starts Porcupine School, he's going to be the youngest in the year. Whereas, you know, if he was just one day later, he could have waited a whole year before starting school and would have been the oldest in his class. But when he goes to Porky School, maybe we should call it, then um, he'll he'll be the youngest. The zoo also points out that did you know that, that porcupine quills are covered in hard keratin? which is the same material that makes up rhino horns and human fingernails. No, I did not know that at all. So are my fingernails are entirely as strong as a rhino horn. Exactly. Yeah, maybe not quite as thick, but they are apparently the same thing. I didn't I didn't even know that fingernails were the same as rhino horns, actually. Definitely my porky knowledge is uh, porky poor. <laughs> yeah, well, in equally as impressive news, the online giving platform Just Giving has announced just announced that it's handled more than £5 billion in donations. The website, which was set up in year 2000, said 10 million people around the world have used its service to make a donation. It's been controversial at times because of the fact that it charged what is a now optional platform fee to cover its costs. Though that attracted some negative publicity over the years, but there can be no doubt that it raised the bar in terms of the service it provided to fundraisers and the £5 billion will be extremely welcome. It will also become more important for charities as Virgin Money Giving closes its doors at the end of November. Yeah, I mean, £5 billion is a lot of money. I wonder what you could buy with um, £5 billion if it all went to one charity. I wonder what that could achieve. Could it eradicate food poverty in a, in a nation or...? Yeah, you would hope so, wouldn't you? That, well, that £5 billion, that's kind of half of what the sector had said that it was going to lose due to the COVID pandemic. So you can only hope that, even though it's been over 21 years, that this money has gone in some way to uh, to help mitigate some of that. I mean, I guess there's been a lot more online fundraising, hasn't there, over the last sort of 18 months? Because obviously anybody who's been doing on their fundraising, they haven't been able to do it in person. So well to Just Giving for raising that five billion pounds we are going to be taking a break next week so there won't be an episode of the podcast but we will be back in two weeks time so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm andy ricketts and i'm stephen delahunty thank you to our producer Lindsay riley at rethink audio we'll see you next time